Go ahead and turn your Bibles to James 4. Uh, We're going to study James 4, verses 13 through 17. And this is about dependence on God. Um, But the sermon could equally be titled, Putting Certainty in the Right Place. Um, A lot of this passage is really about what we feel certain in and what is the one immovable thing in our lives. Let's go ahead and read James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. It's kind of an interesting passage, isn't it? Um, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible um, that are maybe more obviously wrong. Um, you know, it's sinful to murder or lust or maybe hatred or lying. But here we have something that seems fairly harmless on the surface. Um, yet we're talking about an arrogant attitude. Um, we have here this idea where we say today or tomorrow we'll go into a town, we'll buy and sell, and we'll trade there and for a year and we'll make a profit and we'll return. I want to ask you, what is wrong with that plan? Not a whole lot. Um, there isn't a problem with that sort of plan to do business. And we make these sorts of plans all the time. Um, a lot of people had plans for the holidays. We, we planned to go to California over Thanksgiving. Um, and maybe you had plans for somewhere where you went or somewhere, someone you hosted. Um, you probably have plans upcoming for, for Christmas. Um, maybe you have plans for what you want to buy for somebody or what kind of food you want to make. Um, we have all kinds of plans like that. We have plans about what we want to do in the future. Um, with our careers, what we want to do with our families, uh, the things we want to do in our homes, um, what we want to do with our hobbies. Um, this sort of planning is generally a good thing. Um, yet here, this is called boasting and arrogance. It's not the planning that's the issue here. It's the certainty of the planning that's the issue. We are not nearly as in control as we think we are. In Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, we kind of see our place in life. We see how low we are compared to God. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? This shows God's care for us. It shows how much he loves us and takes care of us. But we see, compared to the way God arranges things, um, the way God arranges the heavens and time and space and all of, all of creation, the way that we live and plan and arrange things is very, very low in comparison to God. God is really the one who is ultimately the planner. And our plans are subject to what the Lord has already willed and what the Lord has already planned. Paul says in Romans 12, that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. 
If we are thinking too highly of ourselves, we are thinking illogically. As if it's crazy if we are thinking of ourselves too highly. And that's absolutely right. To elevate ourselves um, and think that we are more important than somebody else, or to think that we're in control of things when we are not, these things are not sane or sober thinking. In fact, what we know is that we were created by God and placed here for a purpose. The passage I think we know well is in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The preacher at this point has gone through his entire exploration of life um, and pleasure and has seen that it is all vanity. No matter who you are, no matter what you have, no matter how powerful you are, um, no matter where life takes you, it is all vanity, and in the end, you can't really guarantee anything. All things that we think fulfill us don't do a very good job um, of that. And everything that we have can be taken away in a moment. The conclusion of the book is this. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So we know our purpose is to serve God. And we're going to develop this idea um, in this lesson. Um... In, th- in that this is our purpose and this is our certainty. But to think that we have the level of certainty to make a plan and to know that it will happen, that is the height of arrogance and absurdity. Really a problem I think that we create is this idea of self-sufficiency. We believe that we have everything under control. Um, we believe we don't need anyone else. I think that's a pretty American ideal, right? Um, Especially that we don't need to worry about anyone else. I don't need to rely on anyone. I don't need to get help from anyone else. There can be some some good virtues and independence and uh, personal responsibility. But there's also a very dangerous side of that. When that grows into something ugly, turning into pure self-sufficiency, I don't need anyone at all. I don't need God. I don't need to submit myself to him. When Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, he doesn't hold back with them. This church uh, really thinks that they are something. Um, They think that they are really valuable and useful. And he tells them in Revelation 3.15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would, Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold... I will spit you out of my mouth, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And so to anoint your eyes, that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. From what I heard, the, um, the city of Laodicea had a kind of an unusual problem compared to some of the cities around them. Um, they didn't have great access to water. Um, some of the other cities nearby had these fresh, cold springs, you know, good drinking water um, that came out of the ground cold and fresh and wonderful to drink. 
Another city nearby had hot springs that were renowned for their healing properties um, and their usefulness to be able to soak in, and this hot water would alleviate all sorts of health problems. Laodicea didn't have a nice, fresh, cold water spring. They didn't have the hot water uh, either. Instead, they had a kind of tainted water uh, with large lime deposits and calcium deposits, and that was really unpleasant to drink. Um, It was technically drinkable. It wasn't going to hurt you, but it wasn't pleasant at all. Um, It's not really something that you're excited about drinking. So what did they do? They built aqueducts, and they were able to pipe in water from a long distance. Uh, This was an amazing thing for them to accomplish, but by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. Um, It was just not quite as nice as some of the other cities around them um, and what they had. And everyone in the city complained about the water because there wasn't a whole lot to do about it. And that's what Jesus is saying about this church. You're not good for a whole lot. You are unpleasant to me. You think you are something, you think you have what it takes, and you think you are accomplished and contribute so much to the cause of the Lord, but really you're just unpleasant. You're disgusting to me. And so they grimaced as they drank their their lukewarm, unpleasant water. Jesus grimaces at the prospect of the Laodiceans. And it was because of their arrogance. It's because they believed that they didn't need God. Even though they served him in name, even though they were an active church, so to speak, um, they had that attitude where they believed that they were in control um, and it was not something that God found acceptable. And this is the kind of arrogance that James speaks about as well. Believing that you are in control and that you are the decider of your fate and the decider of your destiny and that the world spins because of you. Well, we move on a little bit, and James says, what you should say instead is, if the Lord wills. The solution to an arrogant mindset that believes that I am in control is quite obviously to remember that I am not in control, Um, and to remember who is. To remember that it is God who gives us what we have. We are not self-sufficient. We don't get 15 feet without God. We need him daily. We have life and breath and all blessing and everything because of him. In James 1.17, it says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What we have is not because of my ability, not because I have done so much to make it happen, um, what I've done to accumulate it myself, but we need to know that I live today because God gave me life. I breathe today because God put air into my lungs. I have a home because God gave me one. We have to push back against this sense of self-control. I am the one who made these things happen. Um, We must remember that it's God who provides all good things. One way to do that is to store up God's words. In Psalm 119, uh, verses 9 through 12, uh, this whole psalm, remember, is the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's an exposition of the Word of God, about the blessing of God's Word um, that is given to us. 
It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. We remember daily that since it is God who provides all these things to us, um, that we have to take his commands. We take the things that he leads us to do and we store them up in our hearts so that we start and finish each day with the push to serve God. Um, with the humility to know that it is him that we are here to serve. So then James goes on to give a very practical reason to understand that we are not in control. And that this example that he gave, remember he said, you think you're going to go and buy and sell for a year in this town and make a profit and come back. One major problem with that is you think you have that year. Well, what if you don't? Oh, I'm healthy. Yeah, and healthy people die all the time. We don't know how long we have to live. We don't know how close we are to the end of our life. We even say things like middle-aged, as if we know that we're at the middle of our life. You know what? Some people don't make it to middle-aged. We talk about how lives are cut short. We think we have a promised number of years to our life. We don't. We have general expectations of how many years we have and what the average lifespan is of a person. But when you get down to the individual, we have absolutely no idea how long we're going to live. I remember in high school... There was a a head-on car accident involving a student in my grade um, that happened right outside the school's entrance. I didn't witness the wreck take place, but I saw the car and the boy after it happened. His life was cut short. He never got the chance to get married. He never got the chance to have kids, to enter into a career. He never even had the chance to graduate high school. What makes it even harder is that he was a kid full of potential. He was smart. He was kind. He had a wonderful, loving family. His father's a preacher. I remember I held it together the whole day. I think I was just in shock and I couldn't process it. But when I was in the shower that night, it hit me like a brick wall. I cried about it because it felt so unfair. He was just like me. He had his whole life ahead of him. He didn't deserve to die. But like all of us, he wasn't promised a certain amount of years, and neither are we. That's just the way of life on earth. You are a mist. Life is a vapor. A mist rises up, and then it's gone in a moment. A vapor is there, and it's not really a lasting thing. You know, you try to catch a vapor or a mist, and it just slips through your fingers, and it vanishes before you even realize it's there. Let's not even make a comparison comparing our lives to the eternal life of God. Um, Just compare your life to human history. We're blips. We're here for such a brief amount of time, 
we think we get these long, full, rich lives, um, but really the world moves on. The earth keeps spinning, nations rise and fall, and people of a new generation move on to do new things, and we are here to do comparatively very little in the span of human existence. Death can come for us at any time. And this is the consequence of sin. God did not create us to die. God does not want us to die. God made us to live and to endure, but sin creates sickness and accidents and wearing down of the body, so now we are all subject to it. Uh, Death is the great equalizer. No matter who you are, no matter how rich or poor you are, no matter how powerful, um, you are going to die. It's a cheery subject, isn't it? Um, But it's true, and we have to remember it. It gives that important check against the arrogance of thinking that I know I have this year to go and do what I've planned, or I know I have these five years or these six months or next week, um, what I've planned to do. After we die, judgment follows. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's appointed for men to die once. We have an appointment with death coming. And after that, we have to answer for the choices that we have made. Um, and the things we've done. I don't think any any of us are naive enough to to say, I'm not going to die. We know we're going to die. Um, But we know a lot of people who say, if I can't stop my death, I just don't have to think about it every day. I can just live life as long as I'm going to live and have as much fun as possible, and whenever the ride is over, it's over. A lot of people have that mindset. When you are not aware of your impending death, when you are not aware um, with what comes after death, you lose the sense of urgency to use your life the way it was intended. Uh, This often is a problem with younger people um, who think that their life stretches on infinitely. Um, We know academically that our lives are not infinite. But we treat it like it is. Um, Because if you only live 20 years, well, 80 seems like a long time. Um, But the longer that we live, the more we know that it goes faster and faster. You blink and you're approaching the end. When we forget our death, there is no sense of urgency to give up sin. There's no sense of urgency to serve God. There is a parable given in Luke 12 of a man with great plans. Luke 12, verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all, and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Sounds like Ecclesiastes. So we say the problem with this man is he trusted too much in his riches. He's putting too much stock in money and his physical goods. But another problem with this man is not realizing how little time he really has. All he can envision is these large barns full of goods. And he thought that meant many years to prosper and to enjoy himself. Um, Yet there is no guarantee that he was going to be given that. And in fact, in this parable, his soul was required of him that very night. So he didn't get to enjoy any of the things that he did at all. He tore down his barn to make a bigger one to store everything up. Yet it's going to go to somebody else. You can spend your life trying to store up goods and riches, um, but you can't take it with you beyond the grave. Who knows who will have it when you're gone. They probably won't take good care of it, and you won't be able to enjoy it. There has to be this urgency to put God first, and this, this desire to use the days that we have. I'll tell you what this rich man could have said. This rich man could have said, I can spend my life accumulating these things and have so much, but I don't even know if I'll get to use them. I don't even know what they're here for. I have not put enough into serving my God. Let me fix that. Let me not worry so much about what I have and instead serve God. Uh, Let me shift my priorities. That's the kind of urgency we need. And that's true whether the issue is money or anything else. So James says um, what you what you should say instead, if the Lord wills. We need to remember God. But the further expansion of this is if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James' big point here is that certainty in the wrong place is arrogant and misguided. The problem with this plan is that you don't know if you will go to that city and do business for a year. What happens if something changes and you can't even get there? Um, You don't know if you will make a profit. Lots of people go into business. Not everyone makes a profit. So you think you can go and buy and sell for a year and make a profit and come back home and have a great time. What if it fails? What if you come back worse off than you started? Well, maybe you do make a profit. You don't know that you'll return. Maybe you stay in that city for some reason, good or bad. Maybe something keeps you there because life has changed, either in a scary way or in a kind of unexpected way. We all have different personalities and different levels of planning. But no matter how much you plan for the future, God does have a way of surprising us. I never thought I would move to Indiana. Um, the state was not on my radar a couple years ago. You know, a few years ago, Indiana was simply one of those I states somewhere over there um, in the middle of the country. I love being here. I have been blessed by God in an unexpected way. We all have things like that. We all have unexpected twists to life, and we all have things that we think will definitely happen, and they don't or we think could never happen in a million years and do. 
That's life. And sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. But believing with certainty that I'm going to do this thing because I will make it happen, or that I will never let this happen, is arrogant. Plug in whatever thing that is in your life. It can be possessions or money or anything else. But whatever you think is that thing that sustains you through life, the thing that is non-negotiable, the one single constant thing in your life, you're dead wrong unless it's God. People say, I am nothing without my family. My family means everything to me. A strong family bond is a beautiful thing, and God has created the family for a wonderful purpose. What happens if you're Job? What happens if you lose your entire family? What do you do then? Is life over? Is there nothing more you can do? If you are truly accurate in saying that your family is everything to you, then now you have nothing. And now there is no way to move on. People define themselves by their jobs or careers. That's who I am. What if you lose that? What if you do something else? What happens if you have a goal in your career of where you want to be? And what if you're just not cut out to do what you think you want to do? What if you aren't good enough? What if you are no longer able to perform the duties of your job because you are getting older or you have an accident that incapacitates you? Are you ruined? Do we define ourselves based on our job? What if a major recession hits and you have to do a job that you thought was below you? Or if you have to even beg on the streets? How would you react to that? Is your job the sum total of your life? Maybe it's not as personal, um, but there are other things we put our trust in. Sometimes we like to put a lot of emphasis on the country we live in. Maybe you'll say, this is the greatest nation on earth. Maybe you believe that. What happens when this country does something that embarrasses you to be an American? What happens when this country is not the best? What happens when this country is evil? What happens when this country is gone? What happens when the government forces us to do things we really don't want to do, or it prohibits us from doing something we we want to do? Can we still trust that God is seeing us through, um, and that God is providing us every good gift? How do we react when a president of a different party is elected? Can we rest in the fact that Jesus is king? What if a president arises in America who does not know the Lord? Sometimes being a good Christian meant being a bad Roman. Can we be a good Christian and a bad American? All Christians are dual citizens, requiring us to to choose which kingdom we'll ultimately prioritize. And sometimes we must lay down a flag in order to carry a cross. This country is not guaranteed to last our entire lifetime or to remain the same as it is today. Um, And we ultimately cannot place our confidence in it. There's a beautiful concept that I was taught. It's called holding things with an open hand. There are many things in life that we want desperately, desperately to stay the same, uh, or things that we want to go a certain way, things in our lives that we can't do without, and we hold on to these things with a tight grip 
don't we? Do not grasp onto these things so tightly. For the, when they get ripped away from you, your hand is going to go with it. We can enjoy the blessings that God gives us, but we need to remember they are just that. Um, they are not something we can put our trust into. They, we can't put our certainty into it, or our hope, or our all into them. Misplaced certainty is offensive to God. Because what God wants is your life, is that you put Him first. He is the non-negotiable thing. If everything changes in your life, if you are completely in a completely different career path, uh, if you lose every member of your family, if you lose every possession you own, uh, if you have to move across the country or across the world, if every single detail of your life changes, you still have the most important thing, which is serving and loving God. God is not the icing on the cake. He is not the cherry on top of our life. God is your life. God is your certainty. He is the one thing that can never, ever change. Our certainty where we think that everything is going to go the way I planned, it seems harmless, but it's not. Our faithfulness is the non-negotiable thing. James ends the chapter by saying, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for for him it is sin. If we have the certainty that God comes first, the certainty that He is my Lord, He is my Master, He is the one and most important thing in my life, then what flows from that very naturally is that I will do the right thing. And I know to do the right thing, and even when everything changes, I will know to do the right thing, and to do anything else would be sin. That is a high challenge. It's a high bar for us to reach, because we are so ingrained with the particular details of our lives that seem so vastly important. These are all arbitrary circumstances. Remember God. Remember you are a mist. Thank God for the blessings in your lives, but remember they are not guaranteed nor are they what we put our certainty in. If we can help you in some way, uh, please come forward and make your need known as we stand and sing. And I'm actually going to change the number to 148 in the red book. 148. Sorry, boy, I have to know if you don't have the right papers. While it is still called today, 148. Today hear the voice that is called.